Hi there. Welcome to another episode of the Colton Boutique Show. Joining me all the way from the other side of the pond is Mr. James Walker. James, thank you for joining us. How are you today? Uh, I'm brilliant. Hope you are as well. Good, uh, good to see you. Thank you. And you as well. Um, you are the CEO of Bike and generally a major player in the world of dining, culinary. How did your career begin in the food industry? Uh, so it's it's uh, an interesting question, and, and probably the answer will surprise uh, people because uh, it surprises me a bit. I was working um, in the import export business uh, for records. Uh, you you are a younger man than I, it appears, but you probably remember at some point they invented a format called compact discs, and uh, I I was importing and exporting compact discs around the world and um, worked a bit much, which is a good caution for me, and uh, left um, Boston where I had been living and went and moved to an island called Martha's Vineyard to try to recuperate um, and got a little bored with recuperation and decided to take uh, a job in uh, at a deli and over you know a period of of weeks and months, um, as I tried to to you know kind of grow the profitability of this deli, started becoming more interested in food and scratch food and, and um, how that it could influence a restaurant, uh, and somehow caught the eye of a chef, local chef by the name of Jimmy Bradley, who was running a fine dining restaurant, who uh, saw something in me back, you know, this is back in the mid 90s, and asked me to join his team. And uh, that not only uh, kind of was my introduction to fine dining, uh, but also my introduction to wine. And uh, as I'm sure you know, you know, if you step into that fine dining uh, world, you get a lot of experience very quickly, you know, it wasn't unusual for my day to start at 4 a.m. and, you know, uh, and end right before midnight, you know, so uh, you get a lot of experience very, very quickly and you're surrounded by other individuals um, who are very passionate about food and wine. And that kind of set the stage for what's really become, uh, you know, a 30 year passion around food, hospitality and wine. Brilliant. And um you, you touched upon what would be my next question, which is, of course, your ventures into wine. Um, is, is that where really your journey with wine began? Or was it, was it before you started your professional career? And was there a moment that you can remember that sparked your interest in wine? And was it linked to a particular wine, uh, say like a Bordeaux or a Napa? Or yeah, so, uh, you know, I think my interest in wine uh, really started with kind of that that foray into fine dining um, because it was you know obviously it was super important to the menu and there were lots of conversations around wine pairings and what have you. Uh, I'm somebody who I became a chef and I worked in fine dining restaurants and then I went to culinary school. A lot of my career and life is doing things backwards. Um, so, you know, I, I worked in restaurants and then I went to France to, to get some formal training. Um, and I remember going into a grocery store and being an American, you know, I'm buying a week's worth of Coca-Cola, uh, and, you know, having, having the shopkeepers look at me like I was insane, 
you know, Mr. Crazy American, why, why are you shopping for a week? Just come back tomorrow. And, uh, you know, this is before iPhones or any of that type of technology. And I remember going back to the hotel and looking at my bill and figuring out um, that, you know, the price of a Coca-Cola in Paris was ridiculously expensive. And for the rest of my time in Paris, switched over to drinking, I think it was Mouton Cadet, right? Because oh, wow. it was less expensive for a bottle of that than Coca-Cola. So this kind of started my interest in wine and my drinking of wine. And that went on for a number of years where I just, you know, was interested and yes, I will have a glass of wine. What do you have? Uh, and then I think right about 2000 or 2001, uh, I was in Miami in the United States and uh, was having dinner with um, a, a fairly popular chef in the U.S., um, by the name of Norman Van Aken. And we we're just having a great time at the table. And I had been transporting a case of wine uh, for a friend of mine. And we're just, we're having a great meal. And I was like, you know, I got a case of wine and I think it's supposedly pretty good. Um, let me get, let me see if this guy will let me have a bottle of it. You know, I'll pay him for it, but let me see whatever that wine is that I got in the car. Let me go grab a bottle and let's sit down and let's drink it because I heard that is pretty good. So I went and, you know, I, I called this guy and he said, yeah, you know, help yourself, grab a bottle. I think you'll like it. And uh, I brought this bottle in and Norman Van Aken, the chef and a colleague I was with, opened this bottle of wine and probably not too dissimilar from other people who are really passionate about wine now. I was like, okay, wait a minute. I've been drinking wine for like 10 years. What the hell is this? You know, this is something completely different. And it was amazing. It was complex. It was fruit forward. There was layers immediately um, upon pouring uh, that I just, you know, so much more sophisticated and nuanced. Uh, and then it got better and better and better. And it paired with the, the food. So it was really the first time epiphany would be the word. Uh, and I know that's a word people don't use anymore. Um, but it was an epiphany. And that wine, uh, that'd be your next question. What the heck was that wine? That wine was a 1989 Lynch Bosch. And still, like, uh, I always in my cellar always have 89 Lynch Bosch. And I know there's kind of this, uh, you know, what's better, the 89 or 90 Lynch Bosch? And uh, I, it's a super fun side by side to do. But for me, going back, to probably 2000 and drinking that in Miami with Chef Norman Van Aken and a colleague, still I can think of, you know, every layer uh, in that amazing wine. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. I've, um, the 1989 Lynch right? It's one of those epiphany wines. It's a word, you're right, that's not used as often now, but it is absolutely incredible. And it's a great chateau as well. For sure. And listen, for, you know, that's a, that's a wine that punches above its weight class, right? Uh, I understand, you know, the, the 89 and 90 and, and maybe now the 2000, um, you know, Lynch Bajer, you know, their pricing certainly increased over time, but I still find it to be a great value for the quality you get. For sure. For sure. And, and with that, have your, since 2000, have your taste changed over the years or simply expanded and are there wines that you like now that you didn't before or are there any wines that you used to like that you now avoid yeah uh, and this is 
this is a really interesting question, and I'll try to stop saying that about all your questions, but you have good questions. <laughs> Thank um, you. So, you know, when, when I had this epiphany around the Lynch Baj, I went from, you know, I just, I took whatever wine was offered to me to really selecting uh, wines. And being in the United States back in 2000, uh, you know, you didn't have tools like Wine Searcher or or access to online wine like you do now. There is there is rarely a bottle of wine that I want today that I can't find, uh, you know, from my laptop in a matter of minutes. But back then it was quite difficult. So my initial foray into seeking wines was very targeted at, at California. And, you know, I remember getting on the Turley list for Turley Zinfandel and then Kistler and some of those uh, initial wines more than 20 years ago, uh, I was, you know, super excited to, to be getting a Turley mailer. Um, so those were the wines that I, I got super excited about over 20 years ago. And I will tell you, I still love a bottle of Turley. Uh, I'm in Cincinnati uh, for some business meetings tonight. I've already looked at the wine list as I do. I tend to be very planful with my eating and drinking. And they've got Turley on the menu, and tonight I'll be drinking Turley. So I still love those wines that I got excited about. I still always keep uh, 89 Lynch Bosch. So I think the, the answer to your question is I still love those wines, uh, but I am most interested today, not in a category one. So it's not Burgundy or Bordeaux or Shiraz or Super Tuscans. I am most interested... And the wine I want to drink next, more often than not, is one that I haven't had. I'm much more excited about that. So maybe to answer your question in a little different way, uh, back in, in 2000, 01, 02, if I liked a wine, I bought as much of that specific wine that I could get my hands on. You know, if, if it was Turley, Haynes, Zinfandel, and they would sell me 12 bottles, I bought 12 bottles and I was super excited to do so. I love Angelus, uh, Chateau Angelus, and but still, maybe I'll buy three bottles because I. It's not that I don't love that wine and want to experience it and experience it over time. I want to spread my wine investment uh, and my cellar space over as many different experiences as, as possible. So I think that's a paradigm shift from buying a lot of wine to really spreading. Uh, my wine dollars, if you will, across the wide selection. Well, that's that's a very smart strategy, to be honest. And um, I do have you to blame. And my wife kind of is annoyed at you as well, because when I was more uh, present with Wine Twitter and I started seeing your accounts in particular, and then obviously from there, you it kind of spirals with who you've connected with and who you engage with, vice versa. And all the time I kept seeing, um, you know, turly, 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 turly. And I remember once when I was in central London, I was in this um, merchant's place and they had this telling wine. I said, right, James Walker, he's raved about this. Let me try it. And it was absolutely incredible. And it's definitely one of the staples in my mini cellar at home because it's a great drinking wine for sure. Great value too. And listen, maybe the coolest wine bottle there is, right? Yeah. Just because of yeah. the design. And I, I was very fortunate to get to, to talk to Larry Turley a little bit. Um, he started out in Atlanta. I had lived in Atlanta. And I remember reaching out to him um, in the early days when I started collecting. And I wasn't maybe as sophisticated from a seller standpoint as I am now. I mean, the physical construction of a wine cellar. And I was like, you know, Larry, I love the way your bottles look, but they won't fit in my cellar. 
you know, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm making bottles that won't fit in your cellar. I said, why would you do it? He goes, listen, I think Zinfandels are made to be drunk young when they're fruit forward and they're peppery. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's okay. Thank you. And I said, by the way, you know, what, what is the appropriate wine pairing, uh, food pairing for a Turley Zinfandel? And he said, a porterhouse steak bigger than your head. So those are, those are my two Larry Turley sound bites. Wow. That's good advice. That is good advice. Uh, I might have to follow that this evening. But um, uh, <laughs> I've, I found that you're fond of Northern Rhones. Do you think that single vineyard Rhone varieties like a Syrah, Grenache um, from the USA are of equal quality now? Wow. Uh, you just said your wife is, is not particularly fond of me or, or, or harbors a grudge. This is a perfect way for me to alienate, I think, a whole continent now, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I'm going to be very careful with my answer. Um, I do think that in particular, Central Coast, California, Rhone varietals are every bit as good as their French counterparts, but I think they are different and therefore I don't think they're comparable. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a Sophie's choice type of, you know, situation. Now, sometimes... Uh, I, I have an amazing wife. She's the best person I know, um, the most honest, loving, uh, and fair person I know. And, uh, you know, she would never pick her favorite amongst our children. She would never do that. All children are brilliant. And I say, listen, at any point in time, I can tell you which of my children is my favorite, you know, my favorite, yeah. and which one is on my bad side at any point in time. And I, that's how I feel about. Um, kind of Rhone varietals around the world. The California ones are plusher and they're more vibrant and they're more fruit forward and they probably don't have the age ability. Uh, and I, you know, the I've had French uh, Rhone varietals going back even recently back into the 70s that blew my mind and, you know, darker fruits and the terroir that, that obviously French wines tend to, to be a little more sophisticated and more pronounced than the American wines. It's just different experience, but I find them both for what they are uh, at a similar, very high quality level. Fair enough, fair enough. And um, if... I knew nothing about American Rhone style wines. Where would you suggest that I start? Uh, Paso Robles and, and Saxum. Uh, you know, I think Jamesbury Vineyard, uh, uh, you know, it was one of those um, pieces of, of property. I, I, you know, I have a picture of myself um, standing in front of a sign that says Jamesbury Vineyard. Because to me, it was like visiting uh, a first growth piece of property, certainly for kind of that greater Central Coast, Central California area, um, because the wines are just so amazing. So I would say um, it's a great way to experience the quality that I'm talking about and the craveability of those wines and the fruit forwardness and everything that California Rhone varietals have to offer. And it kind of replicates California, right? It's bright and it's forward and all these types of things. I think that's an amazing place to start. Okay, very good advice. Thank or, you. For or listen, how about Sinquanon? You know, I can't leave Man Manford Crankle. I don't know that I would start with Sinquanon. 
I might end with Sinquanon. Uh, and, and listen, you're you're probably down the road from Hedonism Wines. They've probably yes. got the most amazing Manfred Crankel Sinquanon collection I've ever seen in the world. Mm. So listen, if if you also want to have your wife be a little upset at me, take your credit card and swing by Hedonism <laughs> Wines tonight and and pick up a bottle of Manfred Crankel's uh, Sinquanon, and you know that'll that'll put me on her list for good. Uh, it certainly would do. Uh, put me on the blacklist as well, but. Uh, <laughs> um... With with regards to your, to your purchasing uh, habits, though, is there is there a wine in particular or wines that, irrespective of the vintage, you know, off vintage, on vintage, etc., that um, you would still buy, irrespective of the so-called quality? Yeah, uh, so I I am one of those individuals who um, you know there's finite cellar space, right? There's there's you know I'm uh, I've got a decent sized cellar. But listen, it's it's uh, it's like water, right? You know, on day one, that cellar, you're like, wow, this this will last for years, and there, it's it's uh, it's cavernous with its its uh, capacity. And then a, a year later, you've got like boxes of unopened wine on the floor. Um, so I tend to really select um, wines by vintage, but. You know, there are wines that I just, uh, I buy every offering for Sinquanon, um, I and kind of all the Sinquanon, um, you know, other, other wines that are out there for, um, that would be associated with that. Um, I tend to buy Camus and Opus One mm. every single year because in the U.S., for my friends, and more often than not, the wines I'm drinking aren't the wine I selected based on what I want. I select wines based on who I'm with. So, you know, people will comment, oh, you're, you know, why are you drinking a young California wine? Don't you know better? Okay, let's let's not get into don't you know better uh, because next we're going to be talking about putting ketchup on things and, and you know, the, the ketchup hate that's out there in the world. Um, I select wines based on the people I'm with and I want them to love it. And whether it's Camus or Opus One, those are crowd-pleasing wines uh, and, and people really enjoy them. So I always will buy Opus One on release. I will always buy uh, Camus on release because there's someone uh, that I will have dinner with throughout the months that love to have those wines. Very good. When it, when it comes to deciding what to buy, uh, as well as your own judgment, your own preferences, uh, which critical critics do you tend to agree with more? Well, so I, I read them all. Um, I really do like Seller uh, Tracker um, because it's it's kind of uh, it's the crowdsourced aggregated um, scoring, right? So it's the Rotten Tomatoes of the wine world, right? We all get to to weigh in, and I like that. And um, what I like about seller trackers, I tend to read the most recent reviews because listen, there's no question that, you know, we'll, we'll stay on Lynch Bosch that an 89 or 90 Lynch Bosch or an 89 uh, or 90 Leoville Las Casas, those are amazing wines. I don't have to say, oh, you know, is that a good wine or not? No, I know it's a great wine, but the question is, is it a great wine and is it drinking well today? So what I like about seller tracker is it allows me to understand how a wine is going to be drinking today. Uh, beyond that, even though I read every wine spectator cover to cover, my preference is uh, single reviewers, uh, you know, like Jeb or, or folks like that, 
where it's one person where I can calibrate. So for years, uh, Robert Parker, you know, he he did his own reviews. And it wasn't that I agreed or disagreed with Robert Parker. It's I knew how to calibrate against it. So if Robert Parker gave, uh, you know, a Cabernet a, a 99 score, I would buy that. But I also would know that there was no way that I should open that bottle for 15 years mm-hmm. um, because he typically would score Cabernets based on their age worthiness. So Seller Tracker is probably the tool I use the most um, as far as what I'm going to drink tonight and looking at like Jeb or single reviewers that I can calibrate against helps me determine kind of what I'm going to invest in for the future. Okay, brilliant. And um uh, as an invest as an investment that you just mentioned was what is the general principle for you when selecting uh, an investment grade wine so my tastes do change um and i may you know wines also tend to accelerate or or increase you know they beat the stock market every year they they increase in their value one of the rules and how i kind of manage myself is if i have guests uh over to my home One of my favorite things is to send them down and say, grab a bottle in the cellar. And it's more fun to send somebody who doesn't know wine than somebody who does. Because if you send, like if you came to my house, and hopefully at some point you will, you're not going to go down and say, oh, there's a 97 screaming go. Yeah, let me bring that up and let's (laughs) pop that on the back porch. You're going to you're going to figure, oh, you know, that would be rude of me. And and being English, you're super worried uh, about being polite. Right. But if I send a friend down who's like, yeah, let me go grab a bottle of red. He might come up and say, yeah, I found this bottle. It's got a little, you know, it's got a bird on it. That looked pretty cool. Let's open that. So I don't want anything in my cellar that I wouldn't open for a friend without any, without second guessing at all. So as I'm looking at buying wines, I want wines that I think will maintain their value and not necessarily I'm worried about appreciation, but if I so choose that I I feel I'm heavy on that wine. Um, like recently, I just I looked across and I had a lot of Harlan Estate uh, for some really nice vintages. But I started getting in that opinion where it's like, am I going to be comfortable if somebody comes up from the basement, uh, from the cellar with a, a $1,700 bottle of Harlan Estate? Um, or is that going to be a little awkward? So listen, I probably had uh, I had more Harlan Estate than I probably should have, and I ended up selling it. So from an investment standpoint, I want wines that I'm comfortable aren't going to lose value because of their lack of age worthiness. Mm. Uh, and generally, I will select those vintages that either maintain their value or accelerate in case I get in a position where I just no longer fancy those wines or I feel them a little long, that I am able to go to the market um, and it, at least uh, recoup my investment or better yet, see some escalation in, against what I paid for it. So I'm pretty selective, especially now, uh, about kind of what I'm what I'm laying down in the cellar. That's, that's a very good strategy. It makes complete sense as well, because like you said, if you're a bit heavy on something, you want the ability to be able to reset it on for ideally more than what you paid for it initially. So it's kind of uh, replenishing itself, isn't it? Yeah. I, and listen, that's to me, that's super fun, right? So if, if I buy and listen, we're, you know, we're talking about French 
you know, typically first gross or kind of those uh, those California cult Cabernets uh, where they are age worthy. And when I have access to them, because most of the cults, as you know, come out on allocation lists and, you know, you're buying French first gross um, kind of on futures. So, you know, you buy a lot and listen, you, maybe you love those wines, but either the price increases to the point that you feel uncomfortable with that being an everyday wine. And I want all of my wines to be everyday wines. Um, or you just say, listen, do I really need 12 bottles of, of this single wine? I'd rather have six bottles of that and six bottles of something else. Um, and you're able to realize kind of the the arbitrage value, if you will, against that individual wine that you're selling. It's great then to go reinvest that in something else. Um, one of the things I, I tell my wife, you know, she'll we'll drink a wine and she'll say, you know, what is what's the value of this? And I said, well, what's the value of it, or what do I have in it? Because those are very, very different, you know, situations, hopefully. And I always look at it as, you know, listen, I, I've, I've got 150 bucks in this or 150 quid where you are. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't matter that that down the street, it's going for uh, for 900. To me, it's a $150 bottle of wine. And that's a great price point to drink with friends on a special Friday night. And I, I don't feel um, price conscious or I don't worry about the investment. And I think that arbitrage kind of moving your collection along and investing wisely allows you to do that. As you're aware, fine wine is such a broad arena and it can sometimes be quite daunting from an outside looking in. Like I said, if I went into your cellar, which I hope I have the, uh, the honor of doing one day. And if I do take, two bottles of nice and nice seven screaming eagle of course we know what we're going to get but for, as i said from the outside of looking to get in there is that air of pretentiousness especially here in the uk um you know that you find with we call it wine snobbery so it can be intimidating for people to get in so for yourself you're very down to earth you know in respect of how great your collection is and will continue to be is there any advice that you'd give to a novice a wine lover or someone who's attempting to get involved in wine and become a lover? I, first of all, I, I love the comments about uh, wine snobbery um, because to me, you know, wine is just so fun, right? You know, there's just such an amazing social aspect to it. Uh, if I drink wine blind, uh, and score it on let's let's use the Robert Parker the the wine advocate traditional scale of one to 100 and two days later I have that same wine blind but I have it with friends at let's say Michael Monaco's Porterhouse one of my favorite restaurants in New York I guarantee I would score that wine higher so to me wine, wine is about hospitality and you know it's about coming together so uh you know, wine snobbery and frankly, culinary snobbery are things that really have kind of turned me off and, and uh, I try to stay away from. My mother-in-law, who I, I love dearly, helped educate me that I needed to be more open and down to earth when uh, 20 years ago, the pinnacle of my collection was a 1997 Turley Haynes Zinfandel that I brought to Thanksgiving dinner to watch her drop two ice cubes in that wine. Oh. 
And initially I was like, you know, whoa. And I just, I said to myself, wow, that's how she wants to drink that wine. Why would I feel, you know, I'm the bad guy here. And I still think back on that. So listen, I love people who are trying to learn more about wine and, uh, you know, they've had some wines they've liked. And I think, uh, I still read about wine. I still read the trades. I still read reviews every single day. Um, the advice I would have is try to find, whether it's a reviewer or a friend or a negotiator or a wine salesman, find somebody who you're able to align with from a taste standpoint. So if they recommend, if you come in and say, listen, I, I had a bottle of, let's use Camus. I had a bottle of Camus. And I really enjoyed it. Somebody who's able to say, okay, I get it. You you like vanilla, you like fruit forwardness, um, you like kind of that blueberry finish or that vanilla finish, and they're able to recommend other wines in that category that kind of match what you like. And I, I think there's some apps out there that, that help with this. Um, I know working uh, to help my wife understand her palate, um, you know, and, and being a Duke graduate, I built a regression analysis model where over maybe a hundred evenings, I was able to say, you know, Sarah, you like fruit forward wines that aren't less than five years old, but not more than 10 years old. So I think, you know, finding somebody who helps guide you along your journey, whether that's a reviewer uh, or a wine salesman or a friend can, can really help. Uh, because listen, otherwise you get in this situation where you're buying wines that are more expensive than you need to, or wines that have a big reputation um, that may just not be right for your palate. So what are we going to be seeing this uh, James Walker wine up then? Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> uh, I think I've got a, a, enough literally and figuratively on my my plate right now. Um, yeah, so I, I'm I'm going to stay on the consumer side, I yes. believe. What about Vivino? Are you familiar with Vivino? And do you use um, them from time to time or not really? Uh, listen, I think it's a great system. It's not one that I use a great deal. Um, I think you know. As you amass a, a larger seller, and amass sounds like, you know, if, if ever there was an arrogant term, right? I've amassed a. a, a <laughs> but it's, it's, it's honest. You've amassed yeah. a great seller. Yeah, listen, I, I've got a large seller. Um, now it's really what's super fun for me is saying, okay, uh, I, I feel that I've got Angelus covered. I've got, you know, whatever. Um, I want to read, I want to research, I want to find a wine. And still every day I find out about a wine that I haven't heard of. Um, and I, I'm able to go out because now it is so easy to find bottles of wine using the internet and tools like Wine Searcher, uh, where I'm able to go out and kind of sniper that wine. Um, and that that's that's super fun for me uh today. Go find kind of those those experiences that I haven't had an opportunity to really try. Yes. All right. Brilliant. Brilliant. And um, again, you eat some of the best foods you pair them with some of the most uh, great, you know, phenomenal wines that there is. What, what about the oddest wine and food pairing you've had over the years? So uh, during COVID um, I get to spend a lot more time at home. I I'm usually on the road uh, a, a huge amount. Um, 
And, you know, kudos to my wife and, and also kudos to uh, Tim Cook, my, my Duke alumni brother over at Apple for, for giving us great technology where I can visually talk to my wife every day throughout the day. I, I think in, in, you know, the 20 plus years we've been together, my wife and I have, have talked every single day. But during COVID, I got to spend more time at home and I, I cooked a great deal um, and uh, I got to, to really explore things. And one of the things that we did that was super fun uh, around wine pairings is, you may know, I've been associated with a brand that I love and is uh, loved around the world called Nathan's Famous. Yes. And there was a, a sommelier uh, in Alabama that was doing a wine and hot dog virtual tasting. Wow. And I sent this sommelier a message and I said, listen, uh, you know, at the time I was running the restaurant division for Nathan's Famous. I said, listen, I'm not trying to do anything for Nathan's Famous. Nathan's Famous has enough brand awareness, but could I send you some hot dogs? And is there any way I could join this? I would love to do so. And I could invite maybe some well-known chef friends of mine, like Mark Miller and Michael Amonico and, and David Burke, some of the you know top chefs. We'd all like to join in. And we did a virtual Nathan's Famous Hot Dog and Wine Pairing uh, event where sommeliers and chefs did something with a hot dog and then paired wine to it. Uh, and it was super fun. And uh, Nathan's famous hot dogs are all beef. They have a strong flavor of, of garlic and, and smoke and paprika, big umami uh, flavor profile. So they're great from a pairing standpoint. But also, if you think of all the toppings you can put on a hot dog, whether it's, it's sauerkraut, which is acidic and vinegary, uh, in in my case, you know, loving my my countrymen back in England, I of course did Nathan's famous chili dog Wellington, uh, you know, as as one would, right? Of course. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, did a wine pairing against that, and just super super fun. Um, and kind of you talk about wine snobbery, you know, to me the opposite of that is you know, open a first growth with cold pizza for breakfast yes. and, you know, and have a bowl of cereal uh, with, you know, a, a plush California Chardonnay, uh, you know, to, listen, if you're not having fun with wine um, or you feel that there there's only certain circumstances that are worthy of a world-class wine, um, I, I would say you, you probably need to lighten up a little bit. I agreed on that massively. And would I be wrong to, uh, to assume that with the way in which you describe Nathan's Famous, that that'd be better off paired, say, for more like a Californian uh, style wine? Or would that be more like an old world or even like a, uh, say, like a more newer world like Pinot Noir, like from New Zealand or even from America? So uh, it's hard for me to give you a simple answer. Uh, and, and to me, there, there's nuance in here. So when I think of, of Nathan's famous, uh, all beef, so right away, yes, you're on the beef, uh, but how are you going to cook that? Uh, if you're going to cook it on a wood fire, that, that hot dog, because of the fat content, is going to pick, pick up nuances of smoke and char that I think might push you to polyac. Uh, okay. Or if you're going to cook it on a flat top, 
Are you going to uh, condiment that with spicy mustard? That might push you towards a Riesling. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, that's one of the great things about wine pairing is nuances in the food uh, push you towards different pairings. And as we're talking about pairings, you, you may or may not know, but I celebrated my birthday um, the yes. other day. And I had a, a lovely, my birth year is 1968, and I was traveling for work. Uh, and I said, you know, listen, I, I still, I want to have some fun. And I was by myself. I was staying in, you know, a, a hotel down the street. Uh, I went to Williams-Sonoma and I said, I need a wine glass. And they said, well, we, you know, I'm not sure we sell wine glasses. Um, we sell sets of wine glasses. Well, you know, I need just one. So the, the sales associate was brilliant. She went in the back. She goes, well, you know, somebody returned some broken glasses. There's one that's not broken. We'll just give it to you. I'm like, okay, great. So she gave me that and I bought a wine key and I had brought with me a 68 BV Latour. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I went outside at the hotel and uh, I ordered Dickie's barbecue pork barbecue uh, because I thought um, as that 68 had aged, it had picked up a lot of depth and kind of an Amarone type of, of uh, kind of raisiny character. And it still had some fruit. And I'm like, I think that would pair very nicely with uh, smoked pork. And I sat outside, got my wine swirl photo as, as I do. Yeah. And I had uh, a half bottle of 1968 BV Latour with Dickie's pork barbecue by myself, sitting at uh, you know a mid-range kind of discount hotel at 6 p.m. on my lonesome. And I thought it was just absolutely brilliant. So I think whether it's a Nathan's Famous hot dog and it's grilled with your family, whether it's Uber Eats and, and Dickie's Barbecue, uh, you know, I think wine pairings can be super, super fun. And uh, I think it's it's not only okay to have a mismatch, meaning, you know, Nathan's Famous Hot Dog is obviously a, a very inexpensive product. It's okay to have that with a really expensive French growth wine. In fact, I think that can be super fun. Anybody can pair, you know, uh, Jean-Georges, foie gras with an 89 Chateau we Kim. What a brilliant pairing. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, nice job on that. That was a bit of a stretch, you know, 89 <laughs> and, and foie gras, good on you there, right? Yeah, but yeah. listen, I think uh, I would challenge listeners to have a lot more fun and do unusual pairings. Uh, you know, do, do the Aubryon or Cheval Blanc with an In-N-Out burger, uh, with the wine in a paper bag, uh, you know, like like miles and sideways. I think we should all do that. Uh, a, a, frankly, a couple times a month. Agreed. And I think we certainly would accept that challenge, and the viewers uh, at home will certainly accept that challenge as well. So we'll see how that works out. But um, yeah, you mentioned and, about and your tag, wine. Please tag me in it because I I love I would, I would love to see if people actually did that. We'll do that. We'll make sure everyone else does that too, without question. But you touched upon your famous. And not Nathan's famous, but James Walker's famous wine swell. And I've I've tried for the life of me at home, pour it in a glass, taking a picture, and whatever. It just creates a mess. Now I've got <laughs> I've got a glass here. I've got a, okay. a nice bottle of red here. Sure. So 
what I would like is... So from the side, it almost looks like uh, Paul Meyer. But let's see what you got in the glass. It's a it's a Brunello de Montalcino okay. 2013. Brilliant. Um, All right. Very good. Marinetto. So on our websites, Colts Boutique on Courts. So how much would you suggest pouring? So I would say probably two ounces. So generally, I'm somebody who likes low pour. So I think you got enough, maybe even a bit too much there, but okay. certainly more than enough. Uh, you know, I'm not the most... Uh, dexterous person in the world. So generally I like low wine pours. Uh, I love to see uh, how wines evolve in the glass. Um, so, you know, I, I don't pour uh, a big glass. I pour lower pours. And I think specific to wine swirl, uh, I want to see in, in the photo, the difference, uh, you know, kind of between an a massive wine in the corner of the glass with thinner wine, you know, uh, I'm right-handed, so typically what you see is as that wine swirls, it, it's going counterclockwise, which means it's a little thinner to the left, a little uh, deeper okay. yeah. uh, to the right. And the way you get those great photos is basically you want to have a lot of backlighting and very little forward lighting. So where you are, I would recommend that you swirl that uh, up against the window that looks like it's to your like left. It? Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're good. There you go. And I, yep. So the, as you can see what that window's providing uh, is, uh, you know, uh, the, the backlighting that yeah. highlights the colors in the wine. And I think, wow. you know, I've, I've done this for a few years now and uh, I started posting on Instagram side-by-side -side photos where uh, I'll, this is the bottle and this is what the wine looks like. And listen, I don't know if people like it or not. You know, people on Instagram look at it. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But I go back and look at it. And not only is it the color, but I can see the viscosity uh, and the body of the wine um, and the nuance. And it's just super fun for me. And it just, it kind of sparks that memory. Uh, going back, I, I posted photos of that 69, uh, 68 BV Latour. And it was so interesting, you know, kind of the rust color as that wine had aged, where if we grabbed a 2016, you know, it's bright cherry red. Mm. And over the years, how that uh, had matured. So listen, it's something I enjoy doing. Uh, I, I love looking at wine and smelling wine. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, but that's how you do it good backlighting so yes. the light shines through the wine yeah. making sure your glass is not too full okay. uh and better if the room you're in is a little darker than the backlighting uh but that's uh you know that's how, and i would say natural lighting is always best yeah so if i have a super special wine um and and listen, I, what whatever social filters other people have, I think my wife would help testify. I don't have. So listen, I I, I can be in a three Michelin star restaurant, and and get a great glass of wine that I'm super excited about. Maybe it's something I've been dying to try, and and look at it and smell it and be like, okay, uh, I need to walk out in the parking lot for a minute because I have to see this with the daylight. And you know, I know that people are like, this guy is bonkers he's completely mental he you know he's, he's walking out in the parking lot with the latash 
and they've got like three waiters ready to tackle me because they think I'm going to dine and dash. Uh, listen, I'm I'm okay with that. Uh, but I, you know, I think looking at wine uh, in, you know, a beautiful blue sky as a backdrop with natural lighting, you can really see all the nuance in that wine, and it is great for the uh, the wine swirl photo. Certainly is. I'll be uh, practicing that more at home uh, this evening. So thank you for that. Now, on to uh, even more fun things, if we, if we can uh, make things a lot more fun. Um, you're, you're clearly a massive James Bond fan. Um, which three James Bonds, not the actual actors who play the role, but the actual characters, dead or alive, if they're still with us today or not, would you love to have over dinner? And what wine would you serve them, or even champagne, or a bit of both? Um, yeah, what would you serve them? Wow. Uh, so, you know, uh, this is this is a, a really interesting question. So I think, um, so you're saying characters, not actors. Uh, well, we can do both, you know, either or. Okay. So I, listen, uh, I grew up on James Bond. I think uh, it was the first movie, uh, my parents being very religious um, and, and kind of worried about things. It was the first kind of, uh, you know, movie that that didn't have a, a Disney character in it that I was allowed to go to. Uh, and, you know, I got to go to uh, the No Time to Die premiere at the Royal Albert Hall. And listen, if, if that doesn't set you up for the rest of your life, it certainly does. So listen, Daniel Craig and the fact that uh, Angelus, which I already loved, was so clearly featured uh, across some of the Daniel Craig movies. You got to get Daniel Craig in there. Uh, and, and you know, we're the same age, which is a constant reminder of just how poor shape and visual condition I'm in. You know, the <laughs> fact that Dan Daniel Craig and I are the same age is a, a constant source of annoyance. Um, so Daniel Craig, uh, I think, uh, when you look across uh, some of the characters, uh, you know, Auric Goldfinger, which has the greatest bond line, you know, uh, in history with, no, I expect you to die, Mr. Bond. I, I won't try to do it. Uh, <laughs> seems like a guy that you want to have uh, at the, the table. And then, uh, you know, I think uh, Blofeld, and as much as I love Donald Pleasance, I, listen, Christopher Waltz, um, it's just, an, he's an amazing actor. And I think he, he brought that role to life and listen, we would have to drink, uh, Bollinger. I think, uh, we, we would start with a glass of whiskey. We'd move on to Bollinger. Um, we would, uh, absolutely move on to, to Chateau Angeles. And I would end with the Vesper Martini that, so I know that that might be a little controversial, uh, but I see, you know, that that dinner going into the wee hours of the morning, um, finishing with the with the Vesper. Sounds like a very good evening. Definitely. And um, is there a wine that you're yet to try that you'd love to get your hands on? Yeah. So, listen, I, I've uh, I'm a huge fan of Masetto. And I've been very lucky to have some of the, the great vintages of Masetto. You know, the, the 2001 comes to mind. I, I think I've had it seven different times. And every time I have it, it's just, you know, blows, blows me away with just how fantastic that wine is, uh, especially given 
um, you know, that, that it's 100% Merlot. So when I look at Petrus, I've only had Petrus on a couple of, of, of outings, and I've never had a stellar vintage of Petrus. Um, so would absolutely love to do, uh, you know, a, a great vintage of Petrus. And in particular, I would love to do it against some of the other great Merlots, um, you know, certainly Masetto, Tuarita Retagafi, uh, and, and some of those. Uh, but listen, still have, while I've had Petrus, I haven't had just one of those flagship vintages in the right uh, age. Um, so that that's kind of, that's, that's still on the, uh, the to-do list or the bucket list okay that's not bad that's not a bad wine to go for either for sure Indeed. Um, and again we touched upon your cellar earlier but if people um uh, who are on social media if they were to go to uh at jay walker mobile that's your yep. handle right uh on twitter and they actually went through all of your uh pictures they will see just how it is arguably the most beautiful wine cellar I've ever seen. And I'm not just saying that. I don't mince my words. How long did it take for you to build that wine cellar? And uh, as well, if you wouldn't mind just sharing how you even came up with that table concept that you've got in the middle of your uh, cellar room as well. So uh, lo lots of fun. Um, so the table itself uh, goes back um, to the early 2000s. And this is when um, you know, I, I really was trying to lay my hands on every bottle I could. Uh, I was living in Atlanta and I didn't have a wine cellar in the home. I, uh, I had a standing wine cellar. I think I had, uh, like a vino cave, um, in the home and I was using wine storage in a facility. Cause I think at that time, you know, I was just, I was buying everything I could get my hands on and I got to like 5,000 bottles and, um, you know, it, it was uh, it was a lot to manage, and I loved everything about wine. I loved the you know the pomp and circumstance of wine. You know, I when you have a great sommelier and he cleans the glass with wine, and you know he holds it up and he does all those things. I'm still like you know fanboying all about it. I'm just like wow, this you know this guy's so cool. Um, so I had all of these um, OWCs, all these original wood crates, and I'm you know. My wife's like, you know, you, you, you got to have a hundred of these, you know, can you throw them away? And I, of course, said, no, I cannot. Those are, <laughs> those are, those are treasured children. Those are great memories. Yeah. Um, and uh, in my neighborhood, uh, somebody was doing a, a yard sale. I, I think maybe this is an American phenomenon, yard sale, tag sale, garage sale. Uh, but we it, have a car boot sale, literally. So okay, the back of yeah, you. Yeah. All right. So yeah. Kind of similar. For sure. So it's that kind of deal. And one of the neighbors uh, was selling uh, like tables and chairs that he had made. And I was like, you know, you, you made these. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I find some reclaimed wood, you know, a church has fallen down or something. And and I get the wood and I, I make a chair or I make a table or I make a bench out of it. And, and I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I'm like, let me ask you, I have all these wooden wine crates. Mm. Could you, uh, if I brought them to you, you know, could you make him into a table? And this guy didn't consider himself a woodworker. He considered himself a wood artist or a wood oh. artiste, <laughs> an, an artisanal carpenter. Uh, so we, what we agreed on is I would kind of prioritize. I remember, you know, I had a, a wood crate from a 1990 Avianese Vincento, and I had Screaming Eagles and all this. So I said, listen, these, these are our um, 
crates that really mean a lot to me and were, were part of my wine journey. And what he did is he would take the design from the crate. So maybe where it would have the, the winery stamped or in the case of Screaming Eagle, the actual lo logo, and he would cut it into wood slats and then basically put it into this table. Uh, and it took him probably 120 days to make that table because he would steam the wood. So you have this round table uh, and then poured resin on top. So, you know, that table was created in the early 2000s, and I can still look back, uh, and there's early vintages of Sinquanon and Screaming Eagle and Harlan Estate and kind of all of these uh, early milestones of my wine journey. Fast forward to uh, my wife and I uh, purchased a home in Connecticut, and I was uh, living in one location in Connecticut, and using again that same, actually it was Lakov, uh, and the compressor went out. And we were moving from one home to another. And I said to my wife, well, the compressor's out and it's hard to fix the compressor. Um, they'll have to put a new one in. And you know, by the time we get the compressor fixed, it'll probably be about the same as you know, buying a new standing cellar. Should we buy a new standing cellar? Or we're going to this house. Should I just build a cellar when we when we got there? He said knowingly, leading the wife to suggest that the better investment was to build a wine cellar. And the new uh, the new home. Uh, and by the way, she knows these were all leading questions because she's much wiser and smarter than I am. And there's no <laughs> trick I have that she isn't miles ahead of. So we have this large space in the basement and again, leading, well, Sarah, do you think we should, you know, should we divide this very large space awkwardly and build a small cellar that will probably run out of space? And then what will we do? Or should we take this whole large corner of the cellar and build a rather massive cellar? And of course she said, well, you know, go ahead and, and take the whole space. Great. So uh, as I started to design it, um, there were several things that uh, were important to me. I wanted a cellar that was large enough to have people in it, because to me, I just love being in a wine cellar and, you know, being surrounded with wine and memories. So I wanted it to be large enough where I could have that table that we're talking about in the cellar, because that that's really a monument to milestones in my wine journey. That would be in the center of the cellar, but I wanted enough space that probably six or eight people could stand around that and we could drink wine and we could talk about wine and we could tell lies and stories and bad jokes. And art is really important to me. And I love the intersection of wine and art. So I wanted there to be enough wall space um, where I, I could have some pieces. And I had a, a Thomas Arvid painting of a 97 Harlan Estate uh, that means a lot to me. And I've got a Banksy with the the, the rat on the champagne core. Um, the former CEO of Opus One had sent me something. So I, you know, I've got these pieces that I wanted to accommodate. Um, so as I began to map this cellar out, uh, it was done in pieces where we did a, a major wine wall uh, that would accommodate, let's call it maybe 700 bottles. And, and that allowed me to begin to populate the cellar. Um, so the goals were to have enough space right away, but be able to increase the cellar um, over time. So all of the racks were designed to be able to be doubled up. So that that left wall that maybe seven, 750 bottles, that's single deep, but it's designed that I can double it up 
when the time is right and that single wall could move to closer to 1500 bottles uh i also wanted something that kind of spoke to to me um you know i i wanted it to be unique i wanted it to be reminiscent of of time that i've spent in europe um so the flooring i selected this uh this black white gray motif um that's that's kind of a a a, a play on fleur de lis so you're going to have these uh porcelain tile floors uh and it's going to be white and black and then kind of black racking uh, and then you've got this kind of reddish wine crate table in the middle. And no one supported me in this. I, I have this documented, by the way. No one supported me. So like, you're crazy. Uh, it won't look good. It won't look right. That's not how wine sellers should look. And in particular, you know, you in this floor of yours are just, you're mental. It, it, it's not how things are done. And uh Generally, I'm pretty impervious to, to peer pressure as the way I live my life and walking outside to a parking lot to take a photo of a glass of wine prove on a, uh, an ongoing uh, rateable basis. But I was starting to get a little, little uh, you know, okay, may, maybe that's, uh, maybe there is something there. Uh, and I was in Budapest and I was finalizing kind of the, uh, the general contractor to do the initial work and you got to kind of start with the floor. And uh, I arrived in this uh, hotel in Budapest late and kind of went to the, the desk and checked in and the, the lobby was dark and went to my room, went to sleep. I'm an early riser. I typically get up about 4 a.m. Uh, it was early daylight and I went down to the main floor in the hotel and it was the exact floor that I was thinking of putting in the wine cellar. Wow. Uh, and I was like, okay, there you go. If that's not a sign uh, that I should put that in, so, you know, all of this came together where it's gray walls and a white ceiling, black racking, this fleur-de-lis, white, black, and gray uh, porcelain tile, and then that red, uh, reddish-hued um, wine crate table. Not only did it all work together, uh, but it's a very, uh, it's kind of the intersection of old and new and I love that, right? Because, you know, listen, I want to drink an Australian Shiraz and I want to have uh, an American Grenache, but I also want to have old world wines. And I think the cellar really represents that intersection of, of old and new. And it certainly represents, you know, the uniqueness of, uh, of James Walker in kind of bringing those things together. And luckily, I, I think it, it turned out pretty, pretty nicely. I think so. Even, even with uh, where you've got the large bottles laid, laid down and there's another section where you've got uh, your Riedel glasses too, which has also got some other wines there. And it, on the table, I think I saw recently, was it uh, Papi Von Winkle? The, is it bourbon or...? It is. So uh, through, you know, through COVID, I loved being at home, but I missed the social interaction around food and wine. So uh, I thought to myself, you know, what if I brought in a bottle of Pappy 23, which is kind of a, a, a very uh, nice American bourbon. I'll bring in a bottle of 69 Oban, which is kind of my favorite scotch. Uh, and I'll bring in a bottle of Louis. And, and I'll bring in corresponding glassware for each. What is the right glassware for each one of those occasions? 
And the idea will be when we get out of COVID, if we get out of COVID, and somebody comes to the house, they can pick a dram of, of whichever of these they like, come down to the cellar, because again, there's room in the cellar for us to you know, commiserate, tell lies, tell fishing stories, <laughs> complain about politics, what, whatever it is you know, people do when they get together. And they can pick a, a, a dram of Pappy 23, Oban 69, or Louis as they like. And you know, we'll we'll toast uh, the future and put bad times behind us and and look forward. So yeah, that's uh, there's that as well. Oh, that's really really good. Thank you for that. And um, I'm going to be putting you on the spot now with a right quick fire. So really, no time to think here, James. So this or that. So I apologize in advance. Lafitte or Mouton Rothschild? Lafitte. Angelou or Cheval Blanc? Cheval Blanc. Uh, Monrose or Leoville Lascasse? Uh, Montrose. Uh, Masetto or Sasakaya? I, I think I already said. Masetto. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ornelaya or Tignanello? Uh, Tignanello. Okay. Opus One or Ridge Montebello? Uh, for all kinds of, of emotional reasons, not necessarily what's in the bottle, but the memories, Opus. Very good choice. Um, Harlan Estates or Screaming Eagle? Harlan Estate. Uh, Penfolds Grange or Torbreck Runrig? Uh, Penfolds. Nice. Uh, Chateauneuf de Paps, Beau Castells, or uh, the Guigau Lalas? That's a hard decision, but the Lalas. Especially okay. since you're saying Lalas, so you're, you're you know, you're, yeah. make, you're making it a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dom Perignon or Krug? Uh, I've got to go with, uh, I, I love them both. It's a Sophie's Choice type of situation, but because of the memories, I have to go with uh, Dom. Nice. Um, last couple, either Yakem with cheese or a Chateau de Tour with steak. Uh, I'm going to go with Yakem with cheese because I think there's... Uh, there's more variability in the pairing, right? But listen, there's there's great steaks, but they they live right here, right? Whether it's a porterhouse or, or uh, whether it's a strip steak and how it's prepared. But when you open the world to cheese, so I love Ikim, I love Latour, I love steak and I love cheese. But the reality is when you open the world to cheese, you know, the the you know, the the world is is much larger than I think a steak um, allows from a pairing and, and nuance standpoint. Agree. And I think you've answered this one already, but a uh, hot dog or a corn dog? Got to go with hot dog. And specifically, Nathan's face. Nathan's, of course. Nathan's yep. is the best, without question. For sure. Um, so what what is next for you in your, your ventures and your uh, travels? Uh, trying to be as home uh, as, as much as I possibly can. Um, you know, I don't have any more European travel uh, planned. I was lucky enough to spend time in Brazil and in England uh, in May. So I'm still, uh, you know, went, went to uh, dinner by Heston Blumenthal. Nice. Such an amazing, amazing experience. That, that'll probably last me about 90 days of kind of reliving that again. Um, and that we'll, we'll see what the fall brings. The last question, when are you going to come and see us? 
So my, my answer, and I mean it very sincerely, is I come when invited. So, all, you know, it's uh, I, I flew to London in early May. We had a tailwind, and I think I got there in like five hours and 40 minutes. Wow. Uh, I can't get to L.A. that quickly. Uh, and it was, just, it was a great flight, um, you know, Virgin Atlantic. There's a day flight out of New York. Uh, you got Wi-Fi the whole way. The sun's up. You land at dinner time. There's no adjustment to time change because you started in the morning and you end in the evening. So I, I come to London when I'm invited. All right. We'll hold you to that. We'll get the invitation out very shortly as well. But uh, no, James, honestly, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, best of luck with, I said, future ventures. We hope to see you soon. And uh, thank you once again for joining the Cold Smooth Heat Show.